If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, the show where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark, and I'm joined this week with my colleague Connie Loizos. Hello. Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. Hello. And this week's special guest is Om Malik, a blogging pioneer and a longtime venture capitalist at True Ventures. Hey, how's it going? Hello. I'm well, thank you. Before we get into the actual topics, I have a little personal anecdote about Om, and I've been excited about him coming on the show for some weeks because way back when I was a teenager, there was a magazine called Business 2.0, or Business 2, I don't know how you pronounce that. 2.0. 2.0. And Om was there when they did, I think it was a redesign of the magazine, they launched this new version of it, and I used to read that religiously every time it came out. Um, there was an instant companies issue back in the day. I recall vividly the, the, the layout, and to me, it was this portal into tech that was super inspirational and exciting, and got me really jazzed about the business behind tech. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm currently here. So it's nice to kind of meet people you love. So I ruined your life. Is that's what you're saying? <laughs> yes. Okay. The reason why I consumed all of my nails due to stress is because of you and your inspiration. So thank you Great. for that. Mission accomplished. And welcome to Equity. So the let's just jump right in. The biggest news of the week is that Uber. Um, Fortunately, a few minutes before we started recording, priced their IPO. So they went with $45 per share, which is at the very much at the low end of the planned price range that they had set, which was $44 to $50 per share. So let's just start off. I'm curious what everyone thinks of that price. Feels low, surprisingly low. I mean, we were hearing across the last week from Dan Premack and others that Uber was hoping to raise the range and price inside of a higher interval. So to see them this low on their original range seems very soft to me. Uh, I guess I'm not that uh, surprised just because of the sort of, you know, argument for going low, you know, especially tomorrow is going to be sort of a very complicated day because of these tariffs that Donald Trump has, uh, I guess, not only threatened, but already instituted. I saw that Flexport had uh, warned its customers that um, it's already these these uh, tariffs are already being uh, levied. So I think, you know, this, there's going to be sort of blowback from that. Not a great day to go public. Better, you know, safer to, to sort of come out at a low end and, and hopefully, you know, see a little bit of a pop. What do you think, Om? I think, you know, if you look at the ones which went at a more modest price, Pinterest, they're doing well in the market. I think there is a you got to give investors some room to you know, buy in and experience the pop and hold a little bit. So I think pricing it low is m- actually much better. You know, their competitor lift went high, and look what happened there. Right, right, right. And the banks just look so bad when that happens. So the main details here: um, they've raised eight point one billion dollars at a valuation of eighty two point four billion dollars. And I wasn't on the show last week, so I don't know if you guys talked about this because I haven't listened yet. But um, what do you think of them not allowing Travis, uh, you know, ringing the bell next to Dara? I think it's very responsible and reasonable. He left the company under not great circumstances, and I don't think because he was the second CEO, he has unlimited privilege to the company's brand and time and spotlight. Sorry. Well, it did, it did ignite a bit of debate. I noticed on Twitter there are a lot of investors who really thought he should be up there with Dara. I hadn't really given it some thought, but I, I guess I agree that it would be... I would not, not mind seeing him up there. I, I know that's maybe not a very PC thing to say, but um, I mean, he did grow this company to where it was. Dara is, you know, seemingly a great CEO, uh, but he's only been in place for the last year and a half. And I mean, I certainly don't think he needs to ring the bell, but to not even have him, um, you know, standing up beside him seems a little bit, I don't know, maybe agree just as overstating it. But So you think he should? 
be up there. I think he should be, yeah. I think his reward comes in the enormous amount of money he's about to make, and that's right. enough. I know, but I, I was also erring on the side of feeling like he should have been up. He should be up there. But I'm I'm really mixed on it. What do you think? I think you know I am with Connie on this one. I've followed this company from day one, from the time it was, you know, the idea was born in Paris. I was there at the same uh, conference, and you know, to where it is now. Yeah, there was a lot of mistakes which were made in the company. There are some terrible things which are, which have happened and are long-lasting. Like the culturally, the company will have to do a lot more to overcome those challenges. But without Travis, a lot of things don't happen. Absolutely right. And I think this is one moment where he's not part of the company. He's still part of the board, mm-hmm. right? And to not have a board member there, what kind of a message is? I think it's a little bit of revisionist history. Here. I was going to say, I just hate it when people try to rewrite history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, is he is he the guy who's who should be forgiven for what he, the culture he created? I don't know about that. I'm not judge and jury, but I would not like that to happen in my company. But on this one specific incident, I think he deserves to be up there. Also, I mean, it's grown so, it grew so fast. I, I'm not making excuses, although it sounds like I'm about to make an excuse. But um, I think it was probably hard to be, you know, driving the company forward, you know, no pun intended, um, at the at the pace that he was and also to manage all these other pieces. I mean, clearly he should have hired more people. He needed to hire much more help a lot earlier on. Uh, that was, I think, his biggest I think mistake. there's a lot of people around him mm-hmm. who are equally responsible for mm-hmm. where the company ended up. Yeah. I think the board itself is responsible for it. There was a lot of board members who were on the board then, who are on the board now. They should look, they should be held equally responsible for what the culture turned out to be. You know, I think you take all that away. I think in my mind, the only thing I would talk comment on with this one specific incident of should he be up there with the company he was so closely associated with? The answer is yes. You know, the only thing I'll throw in on that, because I think I'm in the minority here, is that if you're trying to close the chapter on a period of time in your company when things didn't work well and you want to be able to change how you recruit and change your culture from the inside, putting up the figurehead for the period of time which things did not go well and were quite terrible inside the company and often outside of it isn't a good message to send. It's showing that you haven't really left that behind. So I get that he did a lot of work for the company and it wouldn't have grown as fast, but he gets paid. He gets a check from all that. He gets liquidity now. That's the reward. Right. Putting from, up there is, is advertising the wrong message to people that may want to join the company. From the Uber perspective of like the PR side, sure. I can completely understand why they don't want him up there. But I think I'm looking at it, you know, from Travis and from the investors' perspective and the people that have been watching from the beginning, and it does feel like a revisionist history for sure. That does make it, make it that you're actually agreeing with Jason Calacanis, though, which is always a dangerous place to be. No, in. I think you're right. You're. I'm not going to disagree with your the point you're trying to make, but I'm also not going to back away from the point where a co-founder is not part of the the celebration yes there is a lot of things which were which are problematic with, with and the there work. are other ways that they could help their reputation right now including obviously paying attention to the people who were striking yesterday in the yeah. city well this this wasn't even in the script so i shouldn't spend too much more time on it but well, um i, I want to go back to the price really quick mm-hmm. because uh, 82 billion dollars is below the 90 we had heard after we'd heard the 120 back in october so this is a dramatic uh downgrade in price, which I think, as Ohm said, is actually pretty smart because they'll have a nice pop and things will go better. And also, when you look back, it never really matters that much. I mean, you know, I feel like a couple of people have already pointed this out in the media today, but Google, Facebook, I mean, there's been so many companies where their IPOs didn't seem, you know, to 
even go very well. Uh, I, I just don't think it really is going to matter in the long term what happens tomorrow. Well, the difference, though, is Uber needs to raise a bunch of money to stay alive. I mean, Facebook went public and had a relatively rough post-IPO period, had a billion dollars in trailing gap net income on its S1. They were fine. Their IPO wasn't that important, aside from the liquidity event. It wasn't a fundraising metric. At this price, they are going to raise less money than they could have at a higher price. And they burn tons of it. Well, so. I think there are a lot of reasons why they probably did um, lower their targets. But I, th- but I think one is probably has to do with Lyft's performance. So I think um, we should just quickly go over. Lyft did release their first earnings report this week, um, which was pretty interesting. The TLDR is that they posted first quarter revenues of $776 million on losses of $1.14 billion, which did include $894 million of stock-based compensation-related payroll tax expenses, which, is, in other words, just major IPO expenses. So losses were huge. Yes. Um, the company's revenues did surpass Wall Street estimates, which were $740 million. But of course, with all the IPO expenses, losses came in significantly higher. Yeah. I think you the, the reason to be concerned about from a consumer standpoint is 12 to 18 months, we're going to see the prices on car sharing going up. Pretty much. That's what they said in their filings. You look at the Lyft filings, and yeah, they were just saying there's less competitive pressure from from their uh, from their competition. That's what they talked right. about. Which is essentially both these companies are now looking at trying to raise prices. So if you're a consumer of Lyft and Uber, you know the happy days might be over. <laughs> I know. The VC subsidized life is over. And also they can't, I mean, that that's also, you know, you think these drivers were protesting in, you know, at least a dozen cities, maybe more around the U- U.S. yesterday, uh, saying they have sort of untenable uh, working conditions and they're not making enough money, they don't have benefits. But these companies are going to be so hard pressed to produce more revenue. Um, so even though customers like all of us are going to be paying more, I wonder if the drivers are going to see any of that or, you know, the things that they want cost a lot of money. So it's going to be hard to tell in Lyft's case because I think they stopped reporting gross bookings in their first quarter revenue, which is weird because they had that metric in their S1 to date. And now they're not going to show us that metric because they thought it would, quote, confuse investors. So we're not going to be able to tell the aggregate platform spend on Lyft and see where that's going. That's and BS. That is, that is the biggest steaming pile of BS we've ever heard on the show. And we had a community <laughs> at just EBITDA on this show. Yeah. Um, we were. Critically, though, I, I, what happened to Lyft after the earnings was shocking. So Lyft, when they announced, actually went up a couple of points and then fell later on in after hours trading and it was down like 11% in regular trading the day after its uh, earnings report going into Uber's pricing, which is just a rough place to be. You know, one other interesting wrinkle on this, I, I can't remember where I read this yesterday, but um, somebody was just pointing out that given the job market right now, these guys could see there could be more sort of attrition. They're, the the unemployment rate is so low that it's becoming almost better to work anywhere else other than Lyft or Uber. You know, you can find benefits somewhere. So if they start losing these drivers to other jobs because there is such a demand for labor, that could also really... Isn't that usually the case that we have, you know... All these companies which have gone through unnatural growth thanks to growth capital provided by private investors go to market and the market finds the stability point for all these businesses. I mean, I think Fred Wilson wrote about this yesterday or day before in which he talked about you know, market going, the market finds the true value of a business much more effectively than private investors do. And I think that's what 
I mean, I've written about that in my email as well, a newsletter that, you know, I think it's a great idea to go public because you eventually get a reality check on private market valuations and public market valuations. What is, you remember Groupon, like how how much they were valued privately, they went up and, you know, eventually they met the reality, right? The reality of human beings' wallet is is untenable. You cannot overcome that. We all run out of money eventually, right? We can't keep spending on Uber and Lyft and all these on-demand services. There's only a limit to how much you can spend. So I think at some point, all these companies will find their, you know, that, that, you know, that pl- plateau and then their stable point. And then, they, then you see whether they are long-term businesses or they're not. And some of them will be, some of them won't be. I also wonder, I don't think they break this out, but, or could even necessarily know, but how many of their customers are sort of enterprise customers versus otherwise, meaning people who are using Uber to and expensing it? Because, you know, if and when there is another sort of downturn in the economy, that could crush them. You know, I wouldn't be using Uber nearly as much as I do if it weren't for the fact that I'm, you know, charging Definitely. the company for the service. I I mean, I would die without Uber, to be honest. I mean, I don't know. How, I don't have a driver's license. I don't drive. I don't have a car. <laughs> I will not get anywhere on time ever. What, what did you and do before Uber? Did you just walk everywhere? I remember every taxi company's phone number. <laughs> and I remember the dispatcher's name and their birthday, and I was very clear wow. to wish them. But Om, Om is inimitable in so many ways. I, I, I don't even know that many people's names. I mean, my God. That's not that many cab companies in San Francisco. No, there aren't. Well, that was the problem, right? Yeah, okay, that was, well, that's why we got we it. Should, we should really move on, but like, let's just uh, wrap the section up by saying um, Lyft is now trading at $55 a share, down from the $87 that it opened at, like what, six weeks ago? How long has oh, it been Oh gosh, now? less than that. I'm yeah, four. Maybe, maybe about a month. I'm but sure. um, yeah, so this episode's going to air Friday morning, and then later on Friday, Alex and I are going to do a special episode on Ooh. Uber's first day trading on the market, so we'll have even more Uber content. Hey everyone, don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. But let's talk about Harry's, the um, Razor startup that has just sold. Yes, uh, so Sort of the big story of this morning is Harry's, which makes uh, razors, face washes, and lotions, sold to this company called Edgewell, Edgewell Personal Care. Uh, but it's really better known for owning Schick. Uh, and it also has another br- uh, razor brand called Wilkinson's, which I guess is like, you know, I think was founded in like 19, or I'm sorry, late 1800s. Um, so this is yet another razor company that has been acquired. Uh, so we had, I don't know how many years ago, three years ago, Dollar Shave Club sold to, to uh, Unilever. We also had um, uh, Tristan Walker's company, Bevel, uh, which makes razors. Uh, that sold to Procter & Gamble, I think, maybe last year. I don't know if that, I don't know if that was ever acquired. Uh, excuse me, the price was ever disclosed. I don't know if this is a great exit for Harry's. Um, I think what's interesting about Harry's, it uh, it seemed a little bit more ambitious in ways to me. You know, they had bought this factory in Germany. Um, they had uh, invested in Hims. I think they wanted to sort of assemble like a portfolio of majority stakes in uh, some uh, some other companies. So, I I guess I was. I mean, it's not shocking. It seems like a pretty good outcome for them. Um, but it seems like a company that maybe wasn't necessarily planning to sell all along. It's four hundred and sixty-three million dollars is what they raised. Okay. So that's a lot of money. Uh, you know, I think from a brand standpoint, it was definitely a premium 
brand and it talked to the younger male uh, you know demographic mm-hmm. whereas shakes and wilkinsons are a little bit more uh, older Sagi. demographic mm-hmm. you know wilkinsons is a the safety razors i used to use long before you know you could Sorry. like you had those you know gillette style blades so mm-hmm. uh i i don't know this is a, it seems like it's a good merger for the two companies mm-hmm. i think both uh, harrys get an exit and Harry's investors got an exit and Edgewell gets a good brand. I've been to their stores, I've tr- seen their products, they look great. The packaging, the everything it looks very premium. So I think it's a good product. In a Dollar Shave Club, as the name suggests, was not very premium. But for me, I think they're all go- gunning for, for Gillette, essentially. And, and so I wanna ask you both, as men who shave, are like I, you know, Gillette has like forty three percent of the market. Schick has, I don't know, maybe twelve percent. Harry's has two percent. As soon as this deal was announced, like every man I know was like, "Well, those brands both <laughs> suck. Schick That's don't work too. very well, and Harry's razors don't work very well." So, what do you guys think? Have you tried all of them? So I'm blind and I shave in the shower, and so I never really know what I'm doing. I just try <laughs> to cut myself and get a, most of the hair off my face. So I don't even know what brand of razors that I have. They're white <laughs> and black. Um, so I'm not really the uh, target demo for this either. Ohm, what do you got? Well, Ohm's I, I, I have a beard now. Before, like I do when I shave, mm-hmm. I actually use uh, Gillette. I I have the Gillette Mac Three. I have a subscription on Amazon, mm-hmm. which is like they deliver one pack every every three months, which lasts me for three months. And I never had to do anything. It doesn't, you know, I never think about it. And just because it kind, Gillette kind of works and it's pretty good. Like I don't have to think about anything other than Gillette mm-hmm. because it just works. Right. right. So, and when I'm growing out my beard, then I have to go to a barber and, you know, get it trimmed Scary. later. Yeah. But my thought here is I don't I never really cared about what I used to shave. It's never been an enormous pain point in my life. Safety razors are so good these days and so ubiquitous and so relatively affordable and so available everywhere that I go. I I never really needed help with this. It never seemed like something that I was like, ah, if only there was a solution to this problem in my life, my face, it won't shave. Yeah. I think the Gillette or all these safety razors are like, you know, the the smartphone. It's like every year there is a new one, except you don't know why you need one. It's like if you have an iPhone 7, it's pretty pretty good. And, right. And like, you know, okay, maybe the camera is a little better, but an extra blade, I don't know. I think this is, but I just well, find Gillette's, the- Gillette's are very expensive, aren't they? I mean, I think for a lot of people, they think, you know, if, if I could spend less on a razor, that would be great. But I think because of the quality of the product, it's, you know- it's I mean, market shares the cost of a fancy Gillette razor is like one Uber across SF. And we all just talked about no, how much Uber we no, use. No, it's much cheaper than that. It was still cheaper than that. How yeah. much is a Gillette razor? This like, is a good you question. You get a set of three blades for like five bucks when you have Oh, okay. So, I don't know what they are. Five fifty, yeah. something like that. Yeah, I'm realizing how little I know about razors. Well, you should know. I'm glad you don't. Well, I guess they did start a women's line called Flamingo, which I hadn't realized. Flamingo? I have never heard of that. I know. Maybe it's very new. You know, I did want to also ask... I have no. I just don't know if you um, would have a clue about this, but uh, so I mentioned that um, this company Harry's had a stake in Hems, which is this wellness brand that we've talked about at length in this podcast. What happens now with that stake? Would you imagine? So this is a cash and stock deal, I guess. Eighty percent cash, twenty percent stock. I just wondered, like, where does so that the, stake go? So I'm pretty sure the parent company Edgewell ends up getting a piece of that. Like whatever the ownership is goes to Edgewell. Okay. 
because they, it's a merger. This is not an acquisition. So they, they're both like, you know, now the, uh, the uh, Harry's shareholders own 11% of Edgewell. So I'm guessing they also get something in the deal. We shall see. I didn't read the, the all the SEC documentation just yet. This is where the old reporter in me comes out. It's like, <laughs> first thing I do is go to the, you know, Edgar and see what, what documents they got there. Yeah, that's smart. Well, I think it's a good moment for the uh, broader D to C space. I think there was a lot of money that went into that kind of category of companies over the last four or five years now. This is an exit of note. And also there's been some kind of talk on Twitter about how D to C has been fading in some investors' minds as a place to deploy capital and exit may help companies in the area that is want that to raise true more. has it been fading because it feels like the opposite to me i was uh the guy you found is circle up which is the mm-hmm. company that helps other people fund brands was talking about how ddc cacs were going up and some vcs that were really active in the space had kind of pulled back and i thought his commentary was really interesting about the changing um dynamics of it but you know not everyone can build a ddc brand and use instagram to acquire customers long term that fills up well that's one thing actually i've talked to uh your colleague at tree ventures tony conrad about in the past which is just that the social channels have gotten so clogged with new brands that it's really harder to break out how does true think about it i mean our approach to investing is not be part of a trend or anything of that sort of a good company is a good company a good founder can build a great brand. Look at, you know, Amy Arrett has built, you know, a great brand. So has, you know, Brian Meehan at with Blue Bottle. You know, they like you don't need to pull special tricks if you are selling something special. Right. right? And well and you've invested in companies that have actual brick and mortar. So Amy uh, uh, Madison Eric, Reed. Yeah, Sorry. I, I, no, that's okay. So yeah. Madison Reed has a growing number of actual salons where you can get your hair colored yeah. as well as a direct to consumer product. I, uh, you guys were investors in Blue Bottle uh, Coffee right. which had stores. Um so in, I think the 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 one big takeaway for us as a group, and I think my colleagues Natasha and Priscilla wrote about this on on our blog, which is essentially that all great D two C brands have the same dynamics as software companies or SaaS companies. They have similar engagement, same daily active usage, same monthly active usage, in, and they have really high, you know, per customer, you know, revenues. And so, if you can see a good brand. Mm-hmm. You can see there is a lot of similar. Look at if you look at Blue Bottle, you look at Madison Reed. We have another company, Peloton. All these companies have really solid, you know, daily active usage, right, daily monthly TV. usage. So if you don't have that, then it's just another consumer product, right? Like there is nothing, you know, more like there is nothing technology enabled in there mm-hmm. because you're only buying something. You know, there's a lot of products I buy. Like, you know, like, there's a lot of mattress companies, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like, you buy a mattress, you're not buying a new one for five years right. or at least seven years, right? Or if you buy bed sheets, you buy one, a set of two or three, you last 12 months, 18 months. That kind of is a hard product to kind of monetize on, on, on an ongoing basis. So, like, it doesn't really... So, I think there is a subtle difference. So, if you are a company which has that daily active usage in your product and people want it every day... I think you can build a brand. Well, Casper's going public. Do you think it's overvalued? I, I, no, I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying <laughs> it, they have on, a much huh? higher hill to climb, to climb mm-hmm. because you know you can't buy a mattress every day. Well, that's also why I guess they are, they, everybody breaks into other services eventually, like yeah. furniture. Yeah. We don't remember we've talked about like other sort of strange seeming things that Casper can I, can, can I say one yeah, thing about absolutely. Casper? Mm-hmm. Casper lights. They have the night lights. Uh-huh. It may just be the best product I've bought really? this year. Really? 
if you have, I have no affiliation with Casper, yeah. but if you're looking for a nightlight, it is amazing. I made it fun is, of that on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> really interesting. What's so special? Little do we know. Like you know, just the UI, the interface, and like how you interact with it. Oh my God, they must have a great product team, wow, and they must have really a great UX engineer. Now I want one. That might be the first <laughs> useful consumer advice on the history of the show. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. And this may be the first time I'm saying something nice about something. So <laughs> We're breaking all sorts of records yeah. today. Well, talking about uh, consumer goods and uh, products that we understand and don't understand, Luckin, uh, this China-based coffee company that we have talked about um, at some length in the last you know, six to eight months as it's been blowing up, just announced its IPO plans uh Right? On Monday? Yeah, I think it was Monday, yeah. So they filed a new F1 and F1A, which is the okay. foreign version of an S1 that we see off in the United States. And they're targeting between $15 and $17 per share in this IPO. And at the low end, without underwriter's option, it's about $450 million. At the upper end, with the option, it's just under $570 million. So they're coming to raise an enormous amount of capital here, but they're also shockingly unprofitable and their growth is slowing in China. So I don't know how to price this company. I think that share price puts them around a $3.2 billion valuation. And we will have more notes about this when they get closer to actually debuting. But it's a fascinating IPO. If you want to take a look inside of a company that's spending heavily to expand brick-and-mortar sales um, around a really competitive country. So as a nerd, I love it. Um, I want to leave it there so we can move on to um, to Carta. But it's a really fun IPO, and we'll have more notes uh, really probably about two weeks from now. So hang tight. Great. So, uh, well, Carta is a really interesting company. Uh, it announced $300 million in Series E funding on Monday at a $1.7 billion valuation. The round brings the company's funding to just under half a billion dollars to date, uh, or $447 million. So these days, that kind of money doesn't seem so notable. In this case, uh, I think it is because there's sort of it, it, this company touches so many sort of players in Silicon Valley that everybody has an opinion on it. Um, it it so it sort of um, started by helping startups more easily track their equity and manage their cap tables, which is something that's happened forever, but was sort of like a, very much like a paper uh, process and uh, and and not uh, you know as seamless as it could have been. Then I think uh, maybe last year it started doing the same for venture funds, helping them manage their relationships with their investors, including by distributing quarterly reports, making portfolio analytics more seamless, blah, blah, blah. Um, Now the question is, what's next? So the company raised all this money, and they kind of pitched it to me as the creation of a private stock market. They said, look, we've got all these portfolio companies on the platform. We have all these venture capital uh, investors on the platform. Um, We're going to make it a lot easier for people to um, buy and sell their privately held shares in these companies, which is great. But that's also what secondary firms do. Um, And so... Uh, you know, Elm, I'd be interested in knowing what your thoughts are about this. If it's really a stock market or, you know, a secondary player who maybe has more access than, you know, the secondary sort of firms that we've seen in the past have had. Um, so th- the way to think about Carta is mm-hmm. that it's one company which has, uh, you know, th- it has all the data and all the assets throughout the life cycle of a company. They start at a startup level and now most of their, like, first cohort of companies are going public like you know slack and i don't know if it's uber is on there or not and there's a bunch of others so you look at that they can actually create a private exchange in a more effective manner they have much more you know data density they have much more clarity there is 
a more long-term relationships with these companies. So they actually are a viable contender to be a, you know, a marketplace or a, like a market, a stock market compared to secondary market and all those other places. Well, what I wondered, and the, 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 the you know, candidly, the company wouldn't answer for me. I'm not sure if they just haven't decided yet, but I, I wondered if how open it's going to be. So can any accredited investor, you know, a true stock market, there is first some transparency into pricing, um, which I, I don't know is going to be the case with Carta. But also, if somebody came on who doesn't have a tie to a venture firm or a portfolio company but wants to participate in uh, an investment in one of these portfolio companies, w- is that going to be possible? To me, that's really what a stock, you know, like a, a truly, you know, fluid, liquid marketplace would look uh, like. I think the fluid... I mean, yes, the not individuals can't participate probably, but you know the large investment groups can mm-hmm. be part of this, right? Whether it's mutual funds, PE groups, right. hedge funds, they can all be part of it. So that's what they are the ones who bring the real liquidity to to a lot of the secondary market right now. And I think they these guys actually have a good shot at being a real legitimate player for this startup ecosystem. They seem to have more pieces together than anyone. But I wonder, so now TPG, this private equity firm, just this week announced a $1.6 billion fund that is going to be used to buy secondary shares. So how would TPG work with Carta? So I don't know exactly how Carta plans to do mm-hmm. what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in theory, TPG could just be part of the network and you know, use, spend its money spend on, that, its network. Money on that, that network. And mm-hmm. I think Carta could take a very tiny cut from it. I think this is where the big potential is. And like, I'm just trying to imagine why Mark and Reason invested in this company. And I, I don't, mean, yeah. uh, you know, I, I would never underestimate that guy. I think he's brilliant, but he does make mistakes. Yeah, we all do. But yeah, in this does. company's case, like they have what, close to 15,000 companies on their platform? That was my question. What percent of modern Series A and above startups are on Carta? I mean, this what, is 80% this is, in, in Silicon Valley? Yeah. A criticism I heard, which I thought was, you know, sounded, it made sense to me, was that this is very much of a services business. So there's lots of, it's very it's very people intensive. So right now, Carta has, um, it's on an annual revenue rate of $55 million, but it has 600 employees already over like seven offices. That's a lot of people. How many people do you think uh, somebody like Silicon Valley Bank employs? But but how much is Silicon Valley Bank worth? I mean, I'm just saying like it's it's valued as a software company, and maybe increasingly it will be. But I think it's really been more of a services I business mean, are, to now. You know, Thirteen point one billion. Thirteen Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. So and what about um, guys at, at you know Uber? How many employees they have? I can't Google everything on the show. <laughs> I, I mean, you can. That's, yeah. I, there's more than one and less than 10,000. Right, no, sure. maybe more than 10,000. Right. Yeah. That's a software company too, right? But I think Connie makes a pretty good point. I mean, 409A valuations are not something you can always systematize. And there's a lot of things that require hands-on work. But if they do build this market on top of their, their platform, maybe the platform is the hard, low-margin work and the, you know, the uh, exchange is the high-margin software-ish component to it. But I think it's fantastic. And I think Karta, uh, as an employee of a startup... Carta is a cool place to, uh, it's a cool tool to use. It makes things a bit more easy to understand. And that, I think, unlocks value for people that might not have bought their shares if they had to do it all on paper before. And spreading the wealth around is good. That's one company I wish I was a stockholder. And I, I like it that much. Maybe you can buy some on Carta.com eventually. <laughs> no, it's too expensive now. They have had, I asked uh, the uh, CEO, Henry Ward, and they have had liquidity events for their employees. 
So there, yeah. I, I take my risk very early. I'm sorry? I take my risk very early for, <laughs> right. for true companies. <laughs> but I said, I wish. Yeah. I want to throw one more note on this before we get to Cruise and we close up. But I was on Twitter and I saw a promoted tweet from Carta showing off their round and valuation. And that was a new thing for me. Companies used to not share their valuation because they wanted to keep it private and kind of as, as a trade secret. They were promoting it in their new capital they round. They want everyone to know. They want everyone to know how rich and how valuable they are. Well Value- done, TechCrunch. <laughs> you have made it you know, legit for people to announce their <laughs> funding rounds. Come it's on. all our fault. I mean, that's more like a decade ago. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, it has changed the conversation. But I, I like the, the chest beating, if you will. It's a change. Um, I think they just may have promoted it to you. <laughs> just. I mean, I, just that would be a, that would be some micro targeting. I do not matter <laughs> even one percent enough for that to be clear. Wait, um, all your followers don't agree with you on that statement. You, I think you matter a lot. I Moving agree. on to the cruise Alex round, matters. and do not uh, cruise raised a bunch of new money this week at a new, much higher valuation. And if you recall, cruise is now part of General Motors, I think. And but there was a lot of external capital going into the company, and now it is worth an amazing nineteen billion dollars, which for a nearly revenue-free, I presume, autonomous car startup group collective division well, whatever it, it is it was brought in and then it was like spun out again wasn't it there was this weird kind of corporate dance going yeah. on but i do know they've raised something like seven billion dollars now today so it's an insane amount of money i think that might just be in the last 12 months maybe i, I maybe i misread that but I, I feel like they raised a ton of money in the last year is anyone surprised at the amount of capital it's taking to get these various autonomous car startups or groups off the ground because i feel like every month or so we hear about another 500 billion or one billion dollar round capital intensive business they needed tons and tons of money they're burning through the cash how much money do you think Waymo spent we don't know I bet you it's like over $5 billion. Well, so that's why Waymo was talking about raising money from outside funders I don't think this is all this is cheap a lot of this you know in building an autonomous you know platform is going to take a lot of money a lot of money I think uh, what you were you were talking about this earlier that there's 16 or 18 billion dollars have gone into the whole autonomous sector since 2016. Yeah, I think no, since 2018, I think it was about 16 billion in capital globally has gone into autonomous car startups of various types, which is an insane amount of money. But keep in mind, Uber just raised a billion billion in change for its uh, autonomous efforts, and there's more capital here, and we have more in the bank from before. Did you guys see the report today that um, Uber was in talks with Neuro um, to actually handle their autonomous food delivery, despite having raised so much? for their own autonomous vehicle business. Is Neuro the kind of ground up car and software company that was building both the vehicle and the It's got those cool little component? robots that drive down the street and like or, oh. or it will, right? It's very early right. days. I think right. they're just working on a prototype. This is a company that raised a billion dollars from SoftBank last fall. Uber has a lot of money from SoftBank, so I guess that's the connection. I think these food delivery things are so strange because they don't really hold that much. I, like I think you mean in the actual robot. Yeah, I think itself. the robots are so strange. I think the ground robots, like Marble, and you know those, are, I I can't quite make out whether that's a huge waste of money or really smart. The way I think about autonomous is how I thought about the optical stuff in like two thousand two thousand one. There's all these companies which got funded, and everybody was doing one tiny piece of the the you know innovation, and like they raised like hundred million, two hundred million. Well. The long-term impact of all that, you know, crazy spending showed up in, like, 2010, and now we all enjoy the benefits of what happened then. 
And so I think 20 years out, all of this would just look normal, but a lot of pain might be felt in the middle. But this is an expensive uh, you know, endeavor. Autonomous would not be easy. There's a lot of technology to be built, a lot of new semiconductors, a lot of new other technologies which need to be you know, be ground up, built for, for this. So it's going to be a lot of effort. And so. it doesn't make sense. I think companies finally realize it doesn't make sense to ever, ever, everybody trying to reinvent the, excuse me, reinvent the wheel themselves. Yeah. Well, going They're back to Omi's point about how early some of the stuff can be. So the first Palm Pilot came out in 97, which was 20 years before the iPhone came out. And the iPhone was probably what we all actually wanted originally to begin with. But there was so much work that had to go into the market to building these things through time until they reached the point of, uh, kind of hitting the mainstream all at once. So I think it's a good point. I do agree with you, though, that they're too small. You can fit like two cheeseburgers yeah, in that thing, like and that's here, it. Yeah, here are the two pizzas. And, what if I want you know, extra fries? Really, <laughs> I'm not but really. like it doesn't move fast enough, so I can, if I'm walking alongside, I'm just going to pick it up and that's like, the thing. People are tempted it. to right, right. People are tempted to knock it over. They're trying to anthropomorph- anthropomorphize them, so people sort of feel a little bit worse about <laughs> defacing them? them, right? But well, I didn't think that was going to be a big problem until we had the scooter boom, and everyone was throwing scooters into the lake over in Oakland. I mean, people really abused those and sabotaged them and hated them. Uh, so maybe there'll be more backlash against I robots. I still than hate seeing all that stuff. It, it to me, it just looks like garbage on the streets. The scooters, yeah. Especially when you see them in like neighborhoods, yeah, I, I think it looks terrible. I, I still really, I mean, I, I, who cares what I think? But I really I would prefer docked stuff. I just think like leaving the stuff everywhere is just like bad. So the the docked bikes in front of the TC office, totally fine. Yes. Okay, I yeah. got it. But falling over in the middle of the sidewalk, not fine. Right. That, that sounds pretty fair. Yeah. Anyways, I we do should... like the I do like the bikes. But do, do you do you like the bikes just left anywhere? Or does that does it is that just no, me? You, know, you, you can just tie them up. That's all. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's not get carried away talking <laughs> about scooters. We've talked about scooters enough on this podcast. I think that's probably good for the day. What do you guys think? Yeah. Let's wrap things up. We'll be back tomorrow talking about Uber. So fun to see everybody. I'm gonna take an Uber back. <laughs> of course you are. Help out the IPO a little bit. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Thank yeah, you so for having me. All right. Bye, everyone. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.